This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally. Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Hey, business storytellers, it's Christoph Trapp, your host and author of Content Performance Culture. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Uh, Going strong here, still putting out four a week, Uh, especially I'm very, very surprised and interesting to see that the weekend episodes, you guys are really listening to them. So I'd like to know who are the people listening to shows at 4 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday? Maybe Europeans. I don't I don't know. 4 a.m. my time. But either way, appreciate you listening. And today's topic is a topic we haven't covered at all um, on this show. And we'll, we want to talk about cost per acquisition. How do you come up with it? What is it? Uh, why does it matter? All those kind of things um, that are of interest to you. So today's guest, I'm joined by Casey Stanton. He is the founder of CMOX, uh, Fractional Chief Marketing Officers. You can connect with him on that website, cmox.co, so C-O, or caseystanton.com. Casey, how's it going today? Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's going well. Thank you so much for having me. And always glad to have guests on like you. You uh, did not reach out to me. I reached out to you. I heard you talk about part of this topic somewhere else. I don't know if it was on Twitter or somebody else's podcast. I think it may have been somebody else's podcast. Uh, You know, just on the, on the fly, I guess you guys mentioned it. Uh, So I always love finding new guests that way when I hear them talk about topics that I think uh, the listeners here like to hear about. Um, So when we talk about cost per acquisition, kind of give us a definition. What does it mean? and, and, And how do we, how should we think about it? Yeah, so I think cost per acquisition is, um, I mean, it's, it can be as simple as the cost it is to acquire a customer, or um, like that, that's like the simple definition, which is kind of like, duh, but really, there's, there's more detail to it. And cost per acquisition needs to include things like the cost for the medium. So if you're using Google ads, what did it cost for that? But if you're, you know, if you're really thinking, you're also going to throw in there, the cost for the uh, Google Ads manager, the person who's actually doing the work for you. You want to factor that in because that's definitely a cost, right? Without them, you wouldn't have a live Google ad campaign. Um, so it's figuring out all of the ancillary costs that are related to the acquisition of a customer and then dividing it out and having a target number. And having a target CPA or cost per acquisition is helpful when you brainstorm uh, what marketing campaigns to run. And also it's required for you to report on it. And what I say to brainstorm the marketing campaigns that you're going to run, I find this to be really interesting. You know, marketers are occasionally tasked with questions like, get us more customers. How would you get us more customers? And you're like, oh, man, I, I need so much more data to be able to tell you that. And I think of like a chef. If you say to a chef, hey, make dinner, they're going to be like, man, that's really hard. But if you say, hey, chef, I've got, you know, one filet of sea bass. Uh, I've got some mussels, I've got a bottle of red wine and um, all the typical spices and a couple lemons. Can you make dinner? Their answer would be absolutely. And they'd probably make something amazing. 
Now, when you say that to a chef, you're giving them guardrails or something that kind of confines their ability to create the right answer. And that allows for creativity. So when I think as a marketer, when we try to solve the problem of, let's say, drive more customers or drive more leads, we need to do that with some clear guardrails. And one great one is a CPA. When you know what the acceptable cost per acquisition is to, let's say, break even, then you can be creative. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. And now, of course, I'm hungry, even though I'm not a wine guy. <laughs> can we substitute that for a beer? Yeah, perfect. perfect. Uh, um, sounds great. Thank you. So I'm already negotiating with you. Um, so how do we, uh, so the cost of everybody involved. So first of all, so a couple of things that came to my mind. First of all, I mean, that is a high CPA, right? Because if you have a team of people, especially when you get started, or let's say even if you just have one person, I mean, your CPA is going to be higher than it might be in, I don't know, a year or two, for example. Uh, so maybe that's something we can talk about. And then the other thing that came to my mind is when you count all that in, I'm, I'm just thinking about all the inefficiencies marketers have to deal with, right? Let's be in six hours of meetings because the bosses want to have meetings or somebody wants to have meetings. Let's not just pick on the bosses here. Um, and, you know, then I got two hours to do my work unless right. I want to work on the couch at home tonight. Um, so how do you kind of, uh, how do you maneuver those two things? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, there's two costs, I think, in, in marketing. There's like the sunk cost of the headcount or the bench, uh, all your platforms and things like that. Like this is a cost that you're going to have. And then there's the cost for the ongoing acquisition. Most, most companies that I talk to or our fractional CMOs talk to, they'll say stuff like, yeah, we've got a budget of $10,000 a month for marketing or $50,000 a month for marketing, which is um, always, I think, a little misguided. What I want to hear them say is we've got X amount of cash to spend to figure out the right answer. And then we're happy spending 12% of revenue on acquisition moving forward. And that allows for some um, flexibility in the acquisition channels, right? Like you have to dump some cash in to go figure out how to acquire the person, you know, the customers or the leads or, or whatever. And I think for that reason, it's, it's just important to say, okay, we have the sunk cost of the overhead, Right, which is going to be your marketing technician or your marketing director or your marketing coordinator or whoever. This person is like the tactical person who's doing the work. And then maybe you have an external vendor that you're using for a Google ad specialist. And you might take that in as like an additional cost. But you know, hey, we're going to take 10 hours a week of our marketing talents time to figure this problem out. That's the sunk cost. But on top of that, we have an additional budget, which is going to be $500 a week in paid ads or $5,000 a week in paid ads. And you can start doing some math on that to kind of identify the CPA. But I really encourage the listeners here to kind of bifurcate your budgets to a sunk cost or like a, a fund that you're testing with and then the other one that you're scaling with. It makes no sense to have like a limited fund to try to scale with. You know, you should have an unlimited fund to try to scale with once you have something that's proven and for every dollar that you spend on marketing, you know, if you're able to produce three or four or $5, <clears throat> it really doesn't make sense for you to be limited on what you can spend. You should be unlimited. Right. And that's that percentage of revenue. So uh, of course, once, once you're growing that, that math makes sense to me, but how about when you're not 
uh, when you're early on, right? How long does it take for the ramp up? I mean, I'm thinking about content marketing. We used to tell people, well, at least six months, right? To build a brand, to, to even get out there. And that used to be um, when we were in the organic era, when it was much easier to get in front of people without having to pay anything, right? Today, you got to run ads to get in front of people. And especially if you don't have an email list. Um, so, so what's like the, uh, the lead time? How, how long will you need to even get it set up and, and get going? That's a good question. And it really depends on the marketing tactic that you're using. So uh, I love SEO and I think SEO is a very intelligent <clears throat> strategy for a business. But how do you know the right keywords for SEO? Well, you got to go get a, uh, a subscription to AREFs or Moz, and then you got to put together a plan. Maybe you're going to run some Google ads first. That's going to take a while. Maybe you need three months of testing before you even start your SEO campaign. And then you've got to build out your pillar pages and then your satellite content pages. Then you've got to attract backlinks. I mean, it's a lofty long-term process, which if you're going to do it right, it's going to take you a couple of years. On the flip side, you can get a Google ad campaign for the search network live, you know, by the end of the podcast. Those are easy to do. I'm not saying you can get a highly optimized campaign. No, that's going to take a while. But, you know, you can start snagging top traffic searches pretty quickly. So really, it depends on the traffic source that you're using. I think one thing that marketers tend to get wrong is that they're looking for ways to sell the products that exist instead of looking for high margin products first that they can sell. So they're saying, okay, client or okay, boss or okay, partner. Yeah, let's just sell the stuff we've always been selling. But in doing that, you know, there's a limited margin and that business could maybe only be successful through referrals and SEO and not through paid traffic. So look at other ways to sell and I say sell because marketing is salesmanship multiplied. I like that as a definition. You know, marketing isn't raising awareness or, you know, brand affinity or any of that. Marketing is salesmanship multiplied. So it's the ability to sell through multiplication. It's like I can go door to door and sell vacuum cleaners, or I can run a full page ad in the New York Times and reach whatever it is, I think over a million households. So that's, that's what marketing is, right? It's, it's that multiplication. So I see the marketer's job is to sell. So I encourage the marketer to sell uh, in ways that give them leverage. So an example is a high margin offering. So typically you sell software. Well, now sell software plus some consulting time on top of it. And that's the offer that you go out with. So instead of just straight SaaS, it's SaaS plus support. And that support, you know, you charge uh, a premium for it. And when you sell that, there's just a lot more margin as a result. So that's one idea. Another idea is to sell a one-to-many. I think this is also underutilized because marketers, you know, we think, how do we get in front of someone who has intent? Well, how do we work with the sales team to get them high qualified leads in like a B2B space to get them to make sales that are much bigger? So for example, I could go door to door and sell one vacuum cleaner, or I could go to a HOA and sell vacuum cleaners to the whole HOA. And it might be one sales conversation for each, and one has the potential of selling one vacuum cleaner and the other one to 200 units. So look as a marketer for ways to increase your leverage and sell you know, upstream. Same amount of labor maybe, but with a higher potential for reward. And so when you talk about um, marketing, it's not about um, brand awareness, um, some of those things. 
talk about, so how, how do people know about you if they're not aware of your brand? How do you sell to them if they don't know you? So my belief, like if you look at a speedometer, right? And like zero is branding and a hundred on the speedometer is like a aggressive infomercial. I think of myself right at about the <laughs> 70 mark. Okay. I'm not like an aggressive Billy Mays, uh, slap chop, you know, um, like infomercial mm-hmm. salesperson. But also I don't think that the brand is going to do much on its own. I think a brand builds trust, especially for additional sales or especially if it's a longer term sales process. But I think too many businesses get stuck in the perfection of branding instead of generating sales. So uh, even with my company, I started with a pretty simple branding and I got a friend to make our first logo and it was fine, right? I wasn't thrilled by it by any means. It was just fine. And then I got a proper designer to make our new logo once we had enough capital in the business. And building the branding out came as the result of having capital. So mm-hmm. I think that branding is, is an expense that should be invested in once there's capital to invest. And that requires the marketer, again, to have guardrails and say, okay, you don't have brand to work with. So what are you going to do to get these sales? How are you going to kind of muscle your way through this to get um, to get cash in the door and you don't have to rely on brand. You can rely on social proof. I always think of Gary Bensavanga's approach with the Bensavanga persuasion equation and how he talks about overwhelming social proof and how he would beat in direct mail. He would beat packages kind of simply by doubling the amount of social proof. So it's not about the brand behind it. Although that's helpful. I'm not going to say that it's not helpful, Man, I would rather have two pages of proof before I had some nice logo that had a trademark on it. It's interesting too. So first of all, perfection, uh, don't even get me going. If if I was always going for perfection, I'd never get anything done. I just coughed <clears throat> by mistake, right? We're not going to edit it out, Casey, right. because nobody cares, honestly, unless I do it every five seconds. Um, you know, perfection, but it's interesting too, like your explanation. I didn't even think about that as the brand. Like, obviously there's a logo, uh, and those kind of things, but I'm also thinking about, you know, how do people, um, think about the brand? Do they, what do they know about it? Right. Are they, is it trustworthy? Does it appear trustworthy? And I think most of those info commercials, um, don't show them to me. I don't want to watch them. Sure. Uh, but they do. They do. Why do they, why do they work? <clears throat> I heard once that uh, a lot of that infomercial stuff like the Snuggie uh, and these other devices are actually sold to people with um, disabilities and that's the market. And we think as people that are like fully abled that, oh, I want a Snuggie, right? I want a robe that I can put on front ways. But really that's for someone who might have limited range of motion. So they're selling these things to people these devices or this apparel or whatever to people who um, have a problem and it's a significant problem and they're watching TV and they have a behavior of buying like that before. And, and you know, it, the rest of us just think like, Oh, that's kind of funny. I'm going to get my whole family snuggies for like a, you know, a Christmas photo shoot. But um, I think that the people that are buying it have pain. And then the secondary market is the people who think it's kind of silly and funny. Yeah. Interesting. And of course, you know, what works, it's always kind of interesting, right? Some people buy it and other people, uh, they're not interested. When you mentioned SEO, the one thing that came to my mind, we had Jessica Foster on the show and she talked about writing for SEO and 
the thing that I find hard with SEO is, uh, you know, she said something about the terms you're trying to rank for, let's say they're between 100 and 500 search, searches a month. And of course, the um, that takes longer, right? And then second of all, um, that's not that many more clicks over to my website, right? Even if I get a fourth of those or half of those. Um, so certainly that's a long-term project. How about budgets? I mean, you mentioned, it, is, it sounds like it is helpful when people tell you, uh, if people are open with you, right? I mean, I've gotten into relationships and people just say, well, show me your proposal. What would you do? And then I don't know, I guess they pick the cheapest. Uh, but it is helpful when you have that open discussion, right? And it's not just a commodity to this discussion on how to move forward. Yeah, with the budget, um, you know, typically like, I instruct our fractional CMOs, uh, and whenever I work as a fractional CMO, um, I'll take I'll take businesses at their word. They say, "Hey, this is what I want, and this is the budget." And I say, "Okay, like let me work with that for thirty days. Let me see if that's possible." So you give me the direction that you want, and then I'll come back and tell you where you're wrong, or where this is not going to work. You know, I'm not going to just say, "Okay, you're right," and I'm going to make this happen because it might be impossible. You know, working with a company and they want to attract a customer who has an average lifetime value of about $60 and they have an acceptable cost per acquisition of 30. Okay. Where are you going to get an acquisition for 30 bucks? And that's an acquisition uh, that's paid out over the course of two years. Man, that's really tough. Right? Like we're talking like about a dollar a month in profit. It's, you know, a dollar a month is what I have to, you know, get, get a customer over the course of 24 months. Very difficult to do. So we started that campaign and the project to solve it. And long story short, we had to come up with inexpensive, high leverage ways to solve the problem where we have a little less control than I'd like, but also we're hitting our numbers. You know, more control is things like Google ads, but with Google ads comes the bidding wars. And it's difficult to be profitable on a lot of Google ads unless you have a really sharp back end. And as a marketer, we kind of have to straddle that line between marketing, obviously, and product. You know, we can understand uniquely what the market will bear for a product. So we're working, you know, uh, someone listening to this is working with a client or, you know, their company or, or their team and they're trying to sell a single widget and you say, yeah, that widget is good, but we should sell this other thing too. We should change the product a little bit for this unique market because I think we'll get a better product market fit or whatever. And it's, it's the responsibility of, of the marketer. So to kind of go back to the notion of like, how does budget fit into all of this? It's identifying what the market will bear, who the buyers are and how to get in front of them and then to get creative. You know, it's really easy right now to get influencers. I mean, it's like really easy. Influencers are struggling, I think, generally. I, I think that it looks like a glamorous lifestyle. And I would say a gross majority, probably more than 90, 95% of influencers, like don't make enough to cover rent. So these people are struggling and putting together a nice deal and paying them cash for them to do a video review. And then you boosting that video review. That's what it's about. You know, it's not thinking that you'll get an influencer to do a um, a promotion and get a windfall of sales. You know, that that's just like not happening right now. But you can certainly take an influencer's 
review of your product. And then you as the marketer go and push video views on YouTube and Facebook and be able to drive that to the target audience. Yeah. And, and I actually think a lot of people don't think about that Casey at all. They, they, it's a very siloed approach, right? Here's the influencer. You reach out and say, Hey, can you promote this? Do whatever you, you're doing. Uh, and the other thing that I ran across recently, and I, I, I blogged about it over on authenticstorytelling.net, and this is not a influencer relationship per se, um, but I, I was on Nick Westergaard's On Brand podcast, and then I was on Jason Falls, the Jason Falls show at the time. And so then they always write articles about the podcast, right? Uh, and then we talked about my book, Content Performance Culture. And when you search for content performance culture, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but they're pages show up really high right so it's interesting because in my opinion them showing up high actually give gives credibility to my book which is right above it right you can buy it and then now they're showing up i mean that's uh i don't know maybe people are not um people think about influencer relations more as a, in a silo as opposed to that overall approach kind of what you mentioned and what i experienced and with that approach though i think that's a great point you know, it it's not about that one splash that you had when you were on the podcast. It's that now the first page of Google for the keyword term in your situation, a book is just overwhelming. That's what we want to do. We want to make it overwhelming. You know, when I look at Amazon for a product to purchase, I look for overwhelming reviews. Amazon's frustrating because I don't know if I can ever trust the reviews, but it's still what I look for. You know, I just went and got eye drops today and I was standing at CVS and I was like, Ugh, what do I get? And I just Googled best eye drops, <laughs> you know, like I want overwhelming proof that these are good eye drops. I don't know if propylene glycol is something I want to put in my eye or not. Turn, turns out it is. Uh, so I think a lot of people default to Google telling them what the right answer is. And if you can dominate the search engines, then that's a big win. And you can also generate repeatable assets that you continue to use. So in the situation, a video testimonial and or a video review, an honest video review. I mean, it doesn't take much to reach out if you've got a physical product, like let's say a protein powder, you can go reach out to 25 fitness Instagram accounts, have them review it. Five aren't going to like the flavor. Five are going to have like crappy reviews and five are going to be great. And you'll take the five great ones and you'll run those in ads and you're set. And what did it cost you? Product plus a hundred bucks a head. So 2,500 bucks. And now you have five high quality <laughs> testimonials. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to beat. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the one-time splash thing, I, I think that comes still from the publishing world or the, the you know when we printed things and they went out the door and it wasn't so long living, right? The web is just long living. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I grew up as a journalist, right? My article went out the door and the, it's now done, right? The printed paper is done. And what's interesting, too, so we're recording this. This is uh, currently scheduled to be episode 224, and we have uh, 203 episodes published. And episode 179, over the weekend before we recorded this, uh, all of a sudden had 7,000 downloads. <laughs> you wow. know, 20-some 20, 20 or whatever, almost 30 episodes ago, right? So what happened? Well, I know exactly what happened. What happened is it was about Instagram Reels and something all of a sudden started taking off when it comes to Instagram Reels. And that episode was kind of answering that question. Not exactly because it wasn't a problem then when I recorded it, 
but it kind of touched on it, right? So my point is, back in the day, I would have just been like, hey, how was yesterday's episode? How was today's episode? But uh, people are listening to these things now, you know, all the time, and they get recommended. So we're talking about um, cost per acquisition. If there is another episode for another podcast that talks about a similar topic, or let's say, even if you are a guest on another episode, this episode might show up as a recommended next listen, right? Um, even though it may have published six months earlier. So it's it's very interesting how that has shifted over time. Um, so I think yeah, we can... Absolutely. And I think to that point too, Apple is doing a lot right now to invest in uh, podcasts. They bought a... Um, uh, like a suggestion engine and they're rolling that into the new Apple podcast platform. You can search now Apple podcasts for terms like cost per acquisition, and you'll be able to find this episode. Apple is listening to, and like, you know, AI is listening to and transcribing and indexing what podcast episodes are about. So I think that's absolutely a good point. Yeah, and it's so interesting how it has evolved because asked me five years ago, Casey, I would have said, every podcast needs to be transcribed. And I think that's that's kind of changing already um, right there. Uh, some of this cost per acquisition math can get complex, though. How do you how do you make it simpler or, or is it just a complex thing? It certainly can get complex. You're right. Um, and again, it's unique to the to the company uh, and to the offering. Um, I think if it's too complex, ah, it's tough. Uh so a quick story is I worked uh, on a project a few years ago. I don't know, maybe eight years ago. And there was this number that we had, which was called dollars per lead, DPL. And that was the value of each lead that came in on average. And we built the whole business on that. Come to find out that it was a completely made up number. Like it was <laughs> multiplied by some irrelevant constant that just, it was wrong. And when we figured that out, we realized like for like six months, we had built a, um, a marketing campaign on a number that didn't work. But despite it being wrong, it was close, right? And close could mean the difference of being profitable or not. So I'm not encouraging you to not have good numbers, but you can run like uh, a pretty simple test, you know, and, and like there's like this, there's, there's like these caveman tests, right? And I think... Uh, Donald Miller has a caveman test around branding, but I think there's like some pretty basic tests around, you know, like marketing numbers. Um, does this make sense? Like, can I like just do some basic multiplication and figure this out? Does this, does this check out? You know, similarly, like if I look at a promotion, if I close my eyes, open them and close them again, does it pass the blink test? Do I know what the promotion is? Is it reasonably clear without really reading it, what this is about? So I think you can do that with your CPA, your cost per acquisition. And I think that you should put more time and effort into it. And maybe you're going to have to pull something like Wicked Reports or some <laughs> other, you know, better analytics than maybe just Google Analytics. You might have to go offline and do like an Excel sheet and figure it out. Um, but just like have a target, know what it is, know what it is and know that it'll change over the course of the next month. But, you know, like you have a target that you're aiming, aiming for and as long as you're close, you're probably on the right track. Uh, I think it's really easy to get caught up in like the perfection or like the absolute specificity of things at the cost of figuring out the right marketing approach and testing. So I'd rather know that 
the acceptable CPA is 25 bucks and have it really be, you know, 20 to 30 and get campaigns out and live and see what I can do versus spending an extra two months really dialing in that number only to find out that it's 22 and a half dollars. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm laughing because I remember when Casey Cheshire was on the show, we were talking about lead scoring and I love that generation. Guy. Yep. <laughs> he, marketing he, show. He, he is awesome. Um, and he says, you know, I've been in meetings where people argue over whether they should be given eight, eight points for that or 10. He was what, what, what a waste of time for anybody's meeting. Plus yeah. today, of course, that's almost automated. Um, oh, can we talk about meetings for a second? Man, if you just take the headcount of people in a meeting and multiply it by their hourly rate. I, I saw a tweet on this. I, I don't know who to attribute it to, but it was something like a low-level person in an organization or like a mid-level person has to run up the chain of command for a $100 budget to buy books for personal development, right? <laughs> like you have to get finance to agree to this or whatever. But that same person can host a 30 or 60 minute long call with five top people that has like a, an hourly cost of, let's say, $1,000. <laughs> you know, it's foolish how, how we abuse meetings in people's time. And then we penny pinch things that help people develop. Yeah, you know why that is, though, right? It's because um, the $100 feels like real money and the people are already there, right? So that's why people... I think that's why people do it. But I do that all the time, Casey, when I go into a meeting or I'm, um, you know, if I'm working with somebody and, and there's a bunch of people in the room, I say, oh, this is an expensive meeting. Uh, I'll try to make it worth your while, you know, or something like that. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's important to note it. <laughs> and but but a lot of people don't like that. Right. They Because I just pointed out something that's very uncomfortable. Uh, first of all, now everybody's thinking about oh, how much does everybody make? Um, and then second of all, right, they, um, is it really worth having a meeting for this? But it could have just been a Slack message. When you talk about the CPA, though, I mean, are we talking about trying to figure out exactly the salary of the people involved? Or how does that, how do you know who does that? I mean, you know, are we talking about salary transparency now? Or is there just like a flat fee that we, we tie into the cost per acquisition? Yeah, so I think that this, if you're going to have that level of granularity and specificity, and you are going to include the overhead of the marketer uh, and the staff that's going to be running it, um, yeah, I think there has to be some transparency in what people are paid. And maybe that's not appropriate for the marketer to have it. And maybe this number has to come from finance. And finance has to work with HR to figure it out. Right? There, there could be a departmental hourly rate averaged that, that you're given. So while the marketing coordinator might be at 70, the director might be at 100, and the CMO might be at 175, you average that out and it's $100 an hour for anyone's time. You know, there, there's some shortcuts there that don't require excessive um, number crunching just to give you a good target. And again, that's what you want as a target. And you're going to run it for a while and then you're going to stop and do a review. You know, there's always postmortems after something goes wrong. But when something goes right, people rarely figure out what went right. They don't like have a, like an interim kind of meeting to say, okay, what are we doing? What's working? Why is it working? What's our hypothesis? I mean, as marketers, we joke that, you know, we have this lab where we test stuff, but is anyone actually recording hypotheses? So your hypothesis is, okay, our acceptable cost per acquisition is a hundred dollars. So then you run some campaigns to figure out if you can drive in customers with that. 
And then how do you review that? What's your cadence? Where do you write these hypotheses? Where do you write what you found based on your hypothesis and your test? You know, are you actually reviewing that to get better and get smarter? Or are you simply just like doing tests without really looking at the results? Yeah. So do you think, so hypothesis, I mean, I still remember and I, I sometimes it even, it doesn't feel very good when I even think about it, uh, but depending on where you are or what organization you're in, right? I mean, a hypothesis is kind of like, it could be a bad idea theoretically, right? Or it could be a really good one. Um, but some of, I mean, we are all taught, right? We're looking, we, we are looking for the, the right answer in the most, in the fastest way possible. That's basically what school is about. And of course, my, my mentor, former uh, media company CEO, Chuck Peters, talked about that at length. But, um, how, you know, at, at the end of the day, it might not be the right thing to do, right? It might not be the thing that worked. Um, so I can see why that's hard for people to do it, right? We just want to, like, who doesn't want to be right? But we do have to test things. How- yeah, but there has to be psychological safety in the organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the catch here, right? So if if one of our... Fractional CMOs works in a company, and one of the things that we encourage uh, is for them to then hire a marketing technician, someone who's like, you know, sending the emails and, and doing the labor. Um, if that person takes a risk and they're wrong, the first thing you do is you congratulate them. Like, it's a good thing. Like, hopefully they took a risk and it was a limited risk because you encourage them to take small risks. You know, it's foolish if they go and blow 10 grand on a single media buy that was never even tested beforehand, which has happened. Um, but on the other hand, if they're like, ah, I had this wild idea, I had some extra time on Friday, I put up a Google ad campaign, I ran it over the weekend uh, for these keywords to this landing page, and it didn't work. It's like, cool, great, thanks for doing that. It's a limited test, what do we spend? 200 bucks, great, no big deal. Let's put that as something that we tested and it didn't work. Why don't you think it worked? Can it work, you know? Um, it's like if you run a marketing campaign and your acceptable cost per acquisition, again, is 100 bucks, and you drive people in at 120 to me, that's not a failure. To me, that's like just 20% over. So how do you fix that? Well, it's a little optimization on um, the keywords that you're using, getting rid of the crappy keywords if you're doing paid ads or getting your landing page to convert just marginally better or a better follow-up email sequence for leads to convert to customers. Whatever the, the thing is, that's solvable. So as marketers, we have to look at that data and we have to like, we have to truly be scientists. We can't just come up with a creative idea, which is like, you know, arguably the most fun part of marketing, I think. It's just like being creative, but creativity alone doesn't get you any result. So you have to then do the hard work of testing, reviewing, you know, iterating. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I mean, empower people. Right. That's uh, I think that's a whole nother level of leadership. And we we certainly have had people on the show that talked about that. Patty Shada, Michael Brenner, even with his book, uh, Mean People Suck and and others. Uh, Casey, it was great to hear from you on this topic. Really, really appreciate it. Do uh, other than the links that I mentioned earlier, any other places where people should connect with you? Yeah. So actually right now, if you don't mind, we're looking for three marketers who have at least three years of experience working with clients who want to ascend to the role of fractional chief marketing officer. It's a lot like the role of CMO, except it doesn't take the average of 17 years to get to. And it gives you the same flexibility as a marketing consultant without the revolving door of marketing consulting, which I know, you know, it's like (laughs) always prospecting, always servicing, always wrapping up. 
So the fractional CMO is a longer term role, but it gives you the freedom and flexibility and it gives you that um, CMO level pay. So we're looking for three marketers with at least three years of experience. And if you want to learn more, I have a little short presentation at cmox.co slash invite. So there, there's an invitation for anyone uh, who's interested. You can watch it. And if you want to book a time with me at the end of that video, uh, there's a link. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. And if you are sending in your name, uh, throwing your name in the hat, good luck um, becoming a um, fractional CMO. Casey, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for sharing your insights. Thank you, Christoph. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win.